Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 72. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Toby Baxendale. He's an entrepreneur, an investor, and the co-founder of the Cobden Center. Due to commitments, we had to interview Toby in a cafe. The sound is definitely not ideal, and for that, I apologize. At the end of the interview, we asked Tim listener questions. Many thanks for your submissions. They were brilliant, and we'll be doing more of those in future episodes. Toby, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Good morning. Good morning. So, Toby, I, I gather you've just done an Ironman uh, competition. Is that right? Yes. Yes, for my uh, my uh, sins. Yes, a mid- midlife crisis, Tim. You know, I'm 50 years old, so I needed to prove to myself that I can still do it. You know, sad as it may sad as it may sound. That was the, ben- the benefit of people who don't know, because I'm not exactly clear on what, what it constitutes. What, tell us a bit more about Ironman. Apart well, from the film, obviously. <laughs> yeah, no, nothing to do with the film. In fact, um, it could only have happened in America in 1978. Um, I think there was a bet between a cyclist, a runner, and a, a swimmer as to who was the fittest. So they took the premier races of their um, uh, of their sports and clunked them all together. So you have a, a 3.8-kilometer swim followed by a 180-kilometer bike ride and followed by the a marathon at the end, 20, um, 42 kilometers back to back and uh, that's how it all started and then there are um, crazy folk like myself who do these kind of things but I haven't done one uh, a full one uh, for um, eight years and um, I just got to that age I turned 50 in the summer and uh, thought well you know have you still got it in you and uh, decided uh, to go and to go and do it. If it's any consolation, Toby, 50 is a great age. <laughs> jolly good. Yeah, <laughs> jolly, jolly good. What did you think of the, the latest marathon result? It's absolutely stunning. Yes. Uh, and, and, and spectacular. No, 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 way, no two ways about that. I mean, he's, he, he's there. Yeah, he's in history forever, um, that guy. I think, I mean, the really interesting thing, though, will be in race conditions, not in highly stylized conditions. I'm not taking anything away from him, but in race conditions, who will be the first to go under two, under two, hour, under two hours? Because, you know, it's paced. He was paced, you know, and he had a, an effective peloton of, of men around him to windshield mm. him. I mean, all these things, micro things make a, make a big difference. Sure. So I think, so whilst he deserves what undoubtedly, you know, the history books are his, um, the, the, the next real achievement is in, in, in under race conditions, who, who, who goes under two. A lot of that happens in cycling, though, doesn't it? So I guess it's just whether that's going to happen again in the future, whether you have like pace setters and, and draft. I don't know what they call them, but people who go ahead and give you a draft and all that sort of stuff. Yes. I mean, well, that, that's how they did it. I mean, yes. You know, and, and that's hitherto not been, well, it's not been done, no. That's the first. Yeah. What I thought was interesting about what he said is that he said, now psychologically we've broken the two-hour barrier. Everyone will do it. And I suppose that's the thing with sport and investment. It's all psychology, isn't it? A lot of it is, but I'm, I'm not so sure it will go like, like – Bannister held it for a few months, didn't he? And then it all – and lots of people start, no, lots of people, a number of people started breaking the four-minute mile. I don't necessarily – think that will happen with this with this marathon 
record because as I said running in a running in a race environment um, very it's a different set of circumstances I think it would be be a while before we see someone actually do it yeah. you know in something like the London Marathon or Berlin Marathon or, or something like that he's a lovely he's a lovely fellow I mean listening to him being interviewed after I mean what a you know, beautiful human being superb isn't so, he? yeah yeah so so humble so so yeah lovely I, I hope, to, hope to hear much more of him yes so Toby, we we first met um, probably I'm guessing 15 or, or more years ago in, in the context of a well, I think a fund that we, that we were both we were both yeah. invested or at least associated yeah. with is uh, Edelweiss in Zurich. But before that, you were um, a, you you basically had a career as an entrepreneur, and and that's in context in specifically of, of uh, fresh fish delivery. Um, yes. t- tell us a bit about that. Good. Well, the um... To cut the long the long story short, whilst I was at university, um, I was working at a, a restaurant, uh, which I had managed to talk myself into you know, a little bit of sweat equity ownership in. Um, and it was during the '91 recession, and I was just coming up to graduation, and um, it was you know really really difficult business environment. I mean, we, we we were struggling, uh, loss making in, in fact. And um, I thought um, you know the chefs. Uh, you know the chefs were a mo- they were a moaning old bunch um, at the time, and I thought, well, I'll start going to the markets instead of us using supplier. This is one thing you can do in London. We've got you know, Billingsgate, the fish market, Nine Elms, the fruit and veg market, and Smithfield, the meat market, right on our doorstep. So I thought, well, well, I'll cut out the suppliers and, and go and purchase direct and and deliver to the restaurants. And I was saving about a thousand pounds a week. And that was enough, really, just to keep the thing afloat, keep the restaurant afloat. And I learned a tremendous amount from the chefs and from the market people about purchasing all those different types of product, product much to my you know, advantage. And then, you know, it suddenly dawned upon me. I, I basically fluffed any, you know, graduate recruitment, milk round um, type of interviews um, because, you know, I was concentrating on keeping the restaurant afloat. And then I just went straight to supplying other people. And um, I supplied other 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 people, um, really for the first ten years, just just meat and fish, and I had a lovely lifestyle, sort of perfect business. Um, and then um, wrote a Damascus moment um, after both BSE, if you remember that oh, yeah. that in 1996, and Foot and Mouth in 2000, the meat was going to come under significant amounts of pressure. Um, so I've been that and uh, focused in, in entirely on, um, on on fish, and then you know from from there built the largest um, UK fresh fish wholesaler for the for the food service sector. Um, it was a hundred million turnover, and we had about six and a half seven million of of EBITDA profits. Um, and then you know after working like a complete nutcase for. You know, 22 years or, or so. I then sold in um, 20, at the end of 2010 and 2011, and that's when I started investing in in funds, Tim. And that's when we we first came across each other. And and tell, so it's, it sounds like you've had a fairly accelerated journey into, let's like, say, you know, r- rather than going into um, business via economics, you kind of plunge straight in and learn learnt on your feet. Would that be fair? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. There's that was that's absolutely how it was. So do, do, do you have any view about the merits or demerits of 
Tim asked the question about the merits of conventional economics, so a noise went over him. Well, I have many, many, many views about that, Tim. But uh, are you, <laughs> uh, yeah, are you, um, are you angling to as to whether it's useful for you being an entrepreneur or, or, or in general, what, what, either, whether, either or both? Yeah. Well, look, um, from from an entrepreneurial perspective, I mean, I, I was in the dark days of economics, where whereby there's only um, land, labour, and capital, and then mysteriously a bit like the virgin birth, suddenly something happens and, and, the, and the economy gets going and there's no conversation at all about um, on entrepreneurship. There was, it, was, it was viewed in very, very much um, uh, classical and stroke Marxist uh, uh, terms. This is the LSE in the uh, late 1980s. Yeah. Um, I am told, I mean, I do go in and do speakers for schools and, 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 and when I've been speaking at um, schools, ask them about the, the, the teaching of entrepreneurship and, and it is land, labour, capital and entrepreneurs mix the factors of production together uh, to make you know, better things um, over time um, and use savings uh, to do this. So in, in terms of understanding where entrepreneurship is, 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 is the genesis of entrepreneurship, if you like, um, I think that's better now. But certainly back then, I mean, it wasn't even it wasn't even on our our syllabus, you know, in the, in the, on the Bachelor of Science in in LSE, it wasn't wasn't there. Simple as. So it couldn't really provide any 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 use to me as an entrepreneur. Um, it, it gave me it gave me an understanding of of, uh, of generally how the profession views the economy. But um, but Tim, on, onto the other subject matter, you know, in the first year when I was shown the the, the wonderful magic. Keynesian multiplier, um, you know, for about 30 seconds, I thought, you know, wow, you know, this is explosive. This is the this is the end of all problems in society. You've just got to spend money, you know, <laughs> and it ripples through ripples throughout the economy. And hey, presto, you know, you can end world poverty in uh, in, in 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 matters of matters of hours by spending spending all this money. And I, but fortunately, my my better senses pulled me back to terra firma. And I realised, hey, there's something a little bit suspect with this teaching. But yeah, that 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 informed my scepticism um, into the general study of economics. So yeah. speaking of terra firma, that that kind of takes us to the Cobden Centre. Tell us a bit about about how that started. Well, I'll tell you. Uh, well, actually, Tim, if you don't mind, I'll rewind back slightly before. Sure. Um, I I went to the LSE. I decided at 16 years old to go to the LSE. Reason reason why I I hosted a young conservative uh, meeting in Hammersmith with uh, the then Home Secretary, I think it was Douglas Hurd, at the Polish Centre. And uh, these Polish guys, if you remember, they're still behind the Iron Curtain. So the guys who are over here uh, have clearly left that environment. And I was speaking to an old boy and he said, oh, if you don't like, you know, left-wingers and socialists and so on and so forth, you must read Hayek. And I read, I read Amon Butler's um, introduction to Hayek which is a really nice primer to get you going and that's when I said to my mother right mum I'm going to the LSE because I want to I want to be taught by you know Hayek students you know I knew he'd, I knew he'd left um, thinking there'd be a great tradition uh, there of, uh, of, of Austrian economics but when I arrived in the econ economics department and I, after a few, you know, few weeks settling down, you inquire about this. And everyone looks at you in blanks, um, and and then then you get pointed over to the political science department where you can do anything but his economics. And of course, he did 21 years at LSE and won his Nobel Prize for the work he did on at LSE on on um, 
prices and productions, but I wasn't really to know that at that point in time. So, so I thought I was get, getting something at LSE. I thought I was going to get some really sound economics, um, but in the end, I just got you know dreadful um, mainstream, um, highly stylized um, mathematical um, nonsense, quite frankly. Um, so, so that 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 was the that's the LSE bit to give you a bit of context. Yep. Uh, but in in answer to your question on the Cobden Centre. So people like myself who, who are free market orientated, but social, social liberal, we don't really have a, we don't really have a political home, a natural political home, because the conservatives can be sometimes too authoritarian, the liberals aren't free market, um, and the socialists are the, so, are the so, socialists, you know, so, so where, where's your political home? There's no political home, really. But in, in our history, we have people like we have people like Richard Cobden, um, a radical, a businessman and a radical, um, who stood for um, both those uh, free market um, policies and was a social liberal. You know, his I would say three key things about him were his unilateral free trade, the Corn Law reforms, as as we know, which has great relevance to the debate we're currently having about Brexit, um, and a. a Anti anti war, you know. So that that's um, he's a, a a peace pro peace guy because you you know you can't you can't be bombing up loads of people around the world if you want to if you want to be trading with them as well at the same time. And, and often if you encourage trade between people, surprisingly they don't wish to blow blow each other up. Um, and uh, so free free trade um, union you, peace. Um, were, were were his 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 key things, and um, you know that then he's not he was not really he was just called a radical. Although he's a member of the Liberal Party, he was he was a, a liberal radical. So it seemed it seemed um, sensible to me that that's the man who who we want to um, pin our hat on. People of my way of my way of thinking. If we have to identify ourselves with with somebody and call ourselves something, then Richard Cobden's a fairly good place to start. And of course, the third thing. Um, he was involved in the bullion uh, controversies, and he was a hard money um, man. He he realised that, that, that um, you know very early on that um, if you move away from bullion um, into rapid note issue, then the only people who 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 ultimately are, are, are frauded um, are the poor are the poorest members of society. You know, it's all right if you're the recipient of the, those new note issues at that time. It's all it's all right if you're the First beneficiaries of fractional reserve banking, um, but the people who get stuffed are the, are the common working people. So he was a hard, a hard money man. And coming up to the 2007-2008 crisis, um, I got together with Steve Baker, the um, MP for well now he was just private individual then, but um, he became um, MP for High Wycombe um, and set up set up this centre, which is just designed to give a platform for writers who, who write in that tradition on either of those three principal areas. But at that point in time, because of the financial crisis, it's primarily being financially orientated. That platform, is that just online or do you have actual physical meetings? No, it's, it, it's, it's, on, it, it's online. Um, so it's, it, it hasn't really developed anything more than just being an, an, an online presence and in, just to inform um, on um, money, money-related matters.
one of the um one of the, the guests we had on probably a year i guess or so about now john hearn who's uh, uh he teaches at the london institute of banking and finance mm. and he just sent he's just sent me a, a a presentation some slides of presentation he just gave and the one that really shocked me was it's a chart of basically in, intervention government spending as a percentage of gdp and the, the range is essentially sort of 50 percent which is associated with the left, the hard left, so communism and socialism, through mm. 25%, where he would prefer that government spending was, was capped at. And then on the far right is basically 0%, but that also equates to anarchy. Mm. And he defines capitalism as that kind of middle ground of, say, circa 25%. It can never yeah. be zero because you don't get streetlights or law and order. Uh, so government needs to do some spending. It doesn't necessarily do as much as, as, as it is today. But the thing that was shocking is that on this chart, which I can happily make, make available in the, the show notes, is if you look at the current composition of UK politics, Labour, the Lib Dems and the Conservatives are all squashed right next to that 50% level. In other words, everybody is now basically in a, a, sort of a, a middle ground of extremely aggressive spending of other people's money. So my, my question essentially is, what, what the hell happened to Thatcherism? Well, that's gone, I mean, completely. And you can see that in Boris. Um, much as I, you know, I have a, a soft spot for Boris because of what he's um, attempting to do in terms of honouring the, the referendum result, you know, the largest democratic vote in our history. Respect to the man in the, it for that. But he is a, he is a tax and spend, borrow uh, type of Tory. He's not, um, yeah, he, he, he's not in my, in my tradition in that, in, in, in that respect. And there, is, there isn't anybody. We don't, we don't we, we, well, there are, not, there are individual um, members of parliament, but not, there's not a, a political party that um, represents uh, a, a lower um, state spending kind of model. And, do, you think, um, do, you think, do you think that will ever change? Do you think things will ever swing back to a, uh, it may or may not be under the Conservatives, because if Brexit doesn't happen, then maybe the Conservatives don't exist. Yes. Do you think at some point in the future there, there might be a, a political entity that caters to what, what we can call it if you like, New Thatcherism? Well, I don't, know, I don't necessarily know it will ever be called New, Tha new, new Thatcherism because people don't necessarily like, um, she's a very polarising char uh, character. So I, 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 t I tend to think, um, Tim, you see, there, there, are, there are some avenues where, where, which I think are very, very fruitful. As you, as you know, you know in, 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 a, in a free market society, mu forming mutuals, um, forming cooperatives to solve um, solutions um, in, in society that have hitherto, or in, the, in probably most of our lifetime, been, been left to the state, is a positive way forward um, that could be that could be um, explored a lot more. And of course, that mutual provision, I mean, the, the, the health service, you know, we're told miraculously came into existence uh, in the 1945 Attlee government. But, but of course, it was a series of nationalizations of, of, of mutual provision, um, of which they which they based the, the foundation blocks of, um, of the national health service on. And I think there's a rich stream of work to be done in looking at mu resuscitating mutuals and cooperatives as sort of third way, third way solutions. And that could be a way of significantly reducing the, the involvement of the monolithic state um, in, 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 in society. But, you know, um, so long as we have an elect electoral system whereby the population 
um, believe, but you know, I, I, I'm slightly sceptical as to how much they believe now. Now, what politicians say, then it is an auction of, uh, uh, I want to say, stolen money, but uh, it's probably for, a bit. Free, free, yeah. free is as perceived to be. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We had someone. I'm sure you'll remember. I'm sure you'll know Guido Hulsman yes. was our last guest, and uh, I, Paul, Paul can chip in here. But what I found the single most surprising thing of, of the interview for me was. When we asked him, I think Paul asked him, what would you, what's the one thing you would do or could do to change the system? And he said, basically, get the government out of education. Yeah, well, yes, I mean, that, that's, it's at the root of it, isn't it? I mean, you, fairly... could, you, could, you could say, make the same point about, about healthcare as well. So, mm. you know, there's, there's, there's maybe the possibility, hopefully the possibility that you effectively you could almost privatise politics and sort of get everybody away from this tax and spend obsession just get a bit of realism involved to make it slightly more market-friendly approach by using exactly what you've alluded to, namely the sort of reintroduction of a kind of mutual cooperative uh, culture. Yeah. See, I, th I think on, a, on, another, on another ground as well, uh, 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 as well, on a very human ground, people uh, respond to each other much better if they're more interconnected and if they feel they have responsibility uh, for, for, for other, other individuals. So, I'd never, I'd never advocate, advocate the selfish individualistic um, state, um, but very much a cooperative um, so, uh, society. Society, and th those those mutuals, you're always aware that you're 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 bonded and you're working with others together, you know, for a for a common goal, be it your own, you know, mutual health provision for the for the area, or you know, the, or the society that you're a member of, or for whatever. So just morally. Um, in, in reinforcing that you you know you are you are not only responsible for yourself but you're responsible for you're all responsible for others as well will lead to a, a far much much more agreeable society than one we than one we have today where we where we where we subcontract out that level of um, responsibility as a human being to this thing called the state which provides a, in, in, in many respects i mean i, I know we you know we have to worship at the altar of the nhs and congratulate it and say how wonderful it is all the time but you know objectively um in the in the rankings you know for the money that is spent we're not up there at all and i think you know, we get second rate services and we 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 could do and we deserve better um, but but whilst we're in this kind of doom loop, reinforced all the time by the apparatus of the of the state, then um, it's going to be very difficult to snap out of that. I mean, Tim, dare I say it, bankruptcy of the state um, may force that, um, but it, it will ha it will no doubt be something that will be radical. Because remember, even the 1979 radical Tory government didn't even touch those areas. It was like yeah. off limits. Don't know, Tim, uh, where that's going to end up. But um, you, you've mentioned you've mentioned Steve Baker. Uh, would would you have uh, or Steve Baker MP? I should I should probably describe most. Would would you nurse any political ambitions at all? Uh, well, Tim, over the years I dabble with it. Uh, I dabble with politics in terms of being a, a supporter um, and a donor. Sometimes, sometimes I get involved in the local association. It's a fairly rewardless game, I think. Um, Unless well, it's, it's only, only something that could be done out of, out of an altruistic uh, sense. Because I, I remember um, we, we had a Money Week conference about probably three years ago, two or three years ago, and the guest speaker was Dan Hannan, mm. uh, who, who is someone I worship. 
Mm. Um, and I have a hu- huge amount of respect for, not least because he's just absolutely superb speaker. Mm. And uh, privately, we sort of got a little chat chat time with him after his 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 own speech. His own speech, by the way, was given forty five minutes, completely extempore, so without notes. He's, mm. he's, let's say, he's a really class act. But somebody asked him, you know, this is someone. If if then if if listeners aren't familiar with the name, then this is a gentleman who's been an ME, a conservative MEP for quite a while, and mm. also I would say one of the sort of the hidden um, talents behind 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 the Leave campaign. So he doesn't yeah. get as much credit as as others do. Um, but someone asked him, would he have any um, interest in standing as an MP, as a domestic MP, as a, as a UK or English MP? And he said, who in their right minds would become an M- would want to be an MP these days? And he's he's got a point. Yeah, I, I think he, I think he has got a point. Um, I'll just give you a, a little bit of some stories there. When I when Steve got elected, um, he took me into the House of Commons to to see his office, and Dan, we took Dan along as well. And uh, Dan said, "My word, Steve, your office is smaller than my secretary's secretary's office." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. which uh, I think is a is a very good. Um, a very good analogy between a, a, a Euro MEP and a domestic MEP. In but terms to, be, of, to be fair, that's exactly the right way round, though. That's how it should be, given the given the choice. Yeah, give, yeah, yes, given the choice. But look, in terms of you ask about public service, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd, I would love to do public service for, uh, for for my for my country. But the um, but the price you have to pay um, in terms of your in terms of your privacy. Um, and in terms of your um, lifestyle, I think is too great at the moment. When I can, in my own, in my own businesses, I, I can move the dial on the things that I want to move the dial on. Um, I'll also give you a tiny little um, backstory on Dan. Um, so Dan um, came to me at around the time of the launch of the Cobden Centre um, and inquired about Austrian economics, um, and I was. You know, very glad via him and via Douglas Carswell, who also came as well to introduce them to the works of Jesus Huerta de Sota, yeah. who's probably the dean of the Europe of the European version of the Austrian school. Um, so my one small claim to fame is introducing those guys to um, the Austrian school, um, and um, and forever, um, you know, influencing their 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 e- economic outlook in in, in that respect. You know, the Common Centre does have its have some positive legacies in, in in that respect. I mean, one one thing I'd say about the the Austrian uh, approach, you know, it's a bit like going down a rabbit hole. If you fall, if you happen to fall down, and I suspect that most people like yourself and like myself end up falling down that rabbit hole by accident. But once you've fallen down, there's no going back up. It completely no. changes your perspective on everything. Yeah. Well, t- well, Tim, in, in before. Um, no, 19, call it the Second World War, before, before the early, early 40s, uh, there was no distinction between an Austrian school uh, uh, economist and, and anyone else. They were just economists. Um, but it's the, it's the profession that has diverged. Uh, it's the economic profession that's diverged into a whole, whole load, load of other ways of, uh, 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 of, um, of grooming itself and um, other ways of presenting itself and, 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 and looking, looking at, at the world through very different lenses so we're we're old school economists in reality and we're, we're probably actually polit- um, political economists uh, which is what the what the discipline was political economy before before the, the modern period um and i'd, I'd say we're 
no, nothing in modern modern economics has given me any reason to 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 um, revert from that position. You know, and I'm it's just, which is quite shocking to say. So you imagine if you're a I don't know if you're a, 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 in the medical profession and you said um, I'm aware of all modern med- medicine and since 1945, but um, I'm not going to seek to practice it because I don't believe in it. <laughs> that's well, the, the, the one thing I love about the uh, the, the, the sort of modern I, I don't know if it's fair to call it neo-Keynesian economics, but it's like here's a, dis- a supposedly scientific discipline that uh, until comparatively recently didn't even take into account the banking system. That's correct. Yeah. You know, it's like it's like well. I'm sorry, that, that doesn't sound terribly robust theoretically or, or in any other context. This is just absurd. Professor Kevin Dowd, I think he wrote, wrote an extremely interesting book called The Alchemists of Law. And then he discusses all these uh, you know, theories that the City of London um, was, was running on, written by Nobel Prize winners, and then pointing, pointing out all the, all the great you know, whole sectors and segments of the economy that they just, um, they just zero out because they can't, um, they're too yeah. difficult. They're too difficult, yeah, and you, too can't, difficult. you can't provide the data for them properly. Yeah, too difficult to model. So that's it. Yeah. So I mean, we should just be aware. They're they're wonderful um, mathematical um, models, analytical games, um, and you can you can play them, but they they have very little uh, resemblance to reality. Um, and this is um, this is something. I mean, my my son has just um, started economics at um, Cambridge University. And uh, I know this is exactly what he is um, going to be uh, going to be fed in his daily diet uh, there, and uh, and more so on steroids um, from that place. Um, so I'll have to think about. Uh, whilst I, I want him to pass exams, how, how are you going to deprogram him afterwards? Well, well, that's it. I have to think about what's the deprogramming strategy. Um, we shall, we uh, shall cra- see. Cra- crash course of, of uh, Eamon Butler and uh, Ludwig von Mises. Mises I would yeah, suggest. yeah. Well, he's, he's had a, he's had a, a little um, propaganda from me during his early uh, um, early formative years, and I hope that just keep, keeps him sceptical enough, um, not enough to to to, um, to to not do his coursework and so on and so forth, but in, enough to just hold a little bit back. Um, and then um, pass his exams and go, go into life, and then he can explore these uh, these other things, um, but not but, you know with a good degree behind him or what people perceive to be a good degree. When you look to invest in a business, which you you've obviously done many times, how does the Austrian School of Economics help you? Well, I think look, that's re- a really really fascinating question. That is. Um, when I was an entrepreneur, I'm not thinking, I've never ever had to think about that because it's just me, yeah? Um, I'm, I'm investing in, 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 in myself you know, and, and, and what I'm doing. That's like requires no thought um, in, in, in one respect. Um, when you're investing, when, now, now I've sold um, and I am reliant upon um, other, other people. You know, my way of thinking can't be as it was before. I can't assume that people will be doing, you know, exact uh, things that I would take as a, 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 as normality. So the the game has very much changed for me. Um, but what Austrian what Austrian economics does teach um, is that the entrepreneur, you know, is the is the more alert um, individual. Not only just the more alert individual to situations and opportunities, but he's actually the individual who's prepared to execute on that on that thought process. 
Um, as, you, as you know, you, I, I call it the, the pub entrepreneur. You, you meet many pub entrepreneurs who, 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 who say, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And if only these stupid people didn't, didn't do this, they could do that. And it'd be yeah. so wonderful. And, you know, you meet them all the time. Yeah. Um, so people can see opportunities and often opportunities and they're not rocket science. They can be very, very simple. Me supplying meat and fish. Um, to hotels and restaurants, you know, there's no rocket science in that. That is bloody simple, yeah. Um, but it's but it's focusing yourself on what the specific needs and requirements are of the customer that the other people, the competitors, are not doing as much as they should be doing. And there, you've got that little uh, bit of a gap, you know, that you can seek to fulfil. And then it's you know using those factors of, uh, of production. And taking your savings, or if not your savings, uh, other people's savings, and putting them together, and then working through the solutions, so you get something that little bit better uh, for your for, for your customers, um, and and then you're off and and, and away. And then unless you're and unless you're seeing that, unless you're seeing the, the people having the ability to not only identify. But execute and have the means and resources to execute, then you're, you're not going to get anywhere. And um, you know, private equity investment, um, or sorry, venture capital investment, this more applies to the amount of conversations I've had with people. You know, to, to the effect of, you know, if you have a, a million pounds to invest, you know, you can put a hundred thousand um, pounds in in each of these each of these pots and um, you know, let's say they're technology, you know nothing about them whatsoever, but you're essentially just gambling um, on X number of, um, you know, X number will, will, will go bust, um, probably seven or eight, uh, two, two or three might do okay, and then one you might get it times X, 10, 20, even 100, you know, times return, and therefore it's all, all worthwhile over the investment cycle. Um, and that's a, that's what I call soulless um, Solace and non-entrepreneurial investment, because you're just effectively gambling. Um, and neoclassical economics is 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 just literally, uh, if, if you're to if you're just to look at that, that's how you should invest. You know, you 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 don't make any of those um, uh, quality judgments that you have to do about motivations of uh, uh, of the entrepreneurs. Um, about the actual um, need and gap in the marketplace that they're seeking to fulfil, um, and, 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 and about whether they've got the dogged determination—you know, the absolute sheer dogged um, dog with a bone in the mouth determination to go and don't, never let go and, and complete the task, um, which is a personal and a human thing. Which, of course, the, you know, the Austrians are, are always focused on, on the personal and the human, um, whereas abstracting out a mathematical modeling your investment you should just invest as as i've described like the the vc guys and you know allocate your capital and take your chances and then it becomes a matter of gambling when you, when you frame it in these terms it does i think show some of the absurdity of indexation market relative investing the idea that you basically just plonk your money indiscriminately in an index and then just just yeah. wait your wait for your returns to magically appear on a completely undiscriminating basis Yes, it's correct. Um, it's frightening, really, because you, you can be investing in a whole, whole host of, um, uh, of, of junk. Well, by definition, you are, aren't you? 
um, but you're but you're hoping that the the, the, the junk is outweighed by some 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 of the good ones. Um, but you know, Tim, when you when you invest, you know, I read I read your newsletters. You're t- you're you're um, investing more on the value investment thesis, isn't you? So you are you are looking for um, those long-term long-term businesses that are undervalued at the moment but are are, are essentially producing you know stuff things uh, that people want and desire and will be for a long time going forward into the future um and trying to buy just i think your buying point is the is the critical is the critical thing there and you're you you as an investor i think have to rely much less on the getting the personnel right because you've got so many you know, they're so mature and so far down the line um, that they've already got they've already gone through all those all, all those problems by definition at the entrepreneurial end that's what you really have to focus on is the per, is the personnel bit not just the num- not just the numbers and the, and the value and the value bit do you invest in any of those do you, do you look for any of those opportunities yourself do you see any sort of value stocks that you have a dabble in or do you just like to invest in funds to cover off that and just concentrate on your your other entrepreneurial um you know. Look, paul for paul for, it's, a, it's a good question for, for for me personally um the the answer is no i did i did for two years have my my money post a sale of my business managed by wealth managers um some of them tim knows and and whilst i'm very happy with what they were what they were doing, investing very much on the themes that you guys, you know, in, 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 in invest on and around. Um, it wasn't a happy experience for me because, you know, I was 41 or 42 or something like that at the, t- at the, at the, at the time. And whilst I had a wonderful two to three years effectively doing my own, my own version of a PhD on, you know, philosophy, economics and theology, doing all the reading that I hadn't been reading for the last two decades um, that was an indulgence um, and I was getting bored so uh, in August of 2013 I went back to you know managing my managing my own my own affairs but trying not to be the entrepreneur with a capital T and a capital E in projects but being um, being an investor entrepreneur but um, <laughs> the bottom line is i learned loads of lessons there and I've ended up having to be more of the entrepreneur again um but not 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 quite as um uh, as involved as I was um back when I started my own business because I'm now doing entrepreneurial things with others um but would I if I if I if I went back to um putting aside a pool of capital um to um in, in invest in public limited companies, then I would be doing exactly the kind of thing that, that you are doing. Um, and in fact, the only the only um, publicly well, actually, I think it's still a privately traded stock, but they but they ran it as a publicly limited company. It was the Norwegian Norwegian Stock Exchange I own shares in, um, which was a value a value share, but um, and it had a dividend of about eight ten percent. Um, and it uh, was recently sold um, to um, uh, some bigger stock exchange, um, which was which was which was nice. But I mean, what a return! Eight eight to ten percent dividend. I mean, that's just that's just massive, isn't it? If dividend, what's that, Granddad? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I tell you what, it's a very curious. It's a very curious because the share it, it itself is held privately, but they 
publish it like they would a, a, a public listing. You, it, has a, it has a small amount of, li uh, of liquidity in it, maybe a few thousand shares uh, being sold sold day. Um, it um, was very um, very under 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 traded, um, and there were specific reasons why, which have now which have now escaped my mind. But there was a particular reason why nobody nobody liked those shares. So when I was when I was buying in, that's the that's the very very um, low low value. Um, I was getting that type of uh, return out of it. I think it was because at the time it could not be sold um, under the Norwegian law um, to any any other exchanges, and then they changed the law, and then lo and behold, someone's come and bought it, uh, and then everyone's wanted to have a piece of the action of the shares, and it's gone down massively in, in the dividends. You know, now just a regular sort of couple of percent type of thing. But yeah, you should look up. You can look up the history of that of that share. It's been very interesting. But that was the only one I the only one I I owned. What was it? What was it like to sell um, a business for the first time? I don't know what that was. I've, I've been involved in uh, setting up businesses, but I've never yet sold one. So what Tim, were your Tim, on Tim, 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 I'm re I'm really sorry. Could you ask that question again? Because we're getting so much noise from the oh, yeah, cafe. I can, I, I can, um, it's going over you. It? What was it like to to sell your business for the first time? I've, I've involved in setting up business, but I've never actually sold one to date. So, what, what was the emotional uh, journey of selling it like? Well, the, the emotional journey was a yeah. was a um, was a roller coaster of all emotions, a good, bad, and ugly. Um, so there was um, well, a great relief at the end, and you know you receive uh, a lot a lot of money. Um, but then there's the emotional loss of having something that's occupied, you know, your life uh, for, for two and a bit decades, um, and um, you know all the emotional um, loss of staff and friendships uh, that, that that you had. So it's quite sad in sad in one respect. Um, and also, I thought that I was going to be doing an earnout. Um, I've always made people do earnouts whenever I bought businesses. What what's an earnout? I've not heard of that. Ah, so um, if you buy a private business, um, it's often common that you may buy hundred percent uh, of it, but keep thirty percent, say deferred. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah so the entrepreneur needs to stay in just mm. to make sure there's a sufficient handover. Got you. Um, and they're incentivized to make sure um, that um, you know everything's done correctly and yes. there's a smooth, smooth, smooth pathway uh, for the for the next uh, for the next owner. So I thought I'd be doing that, but it, it was in, in, instead they they wanted to buy me out 100. percent And in one respect, that was a great great bit of flattery because you know the strength of the management team that I built over that point in time they could do without me. Um, but then you know I wasn't expecting that, so it was a it was a sudden you know a sudden uh, loss you know, completely. That was it. You know, one day one day I was the big cheese, the next day I was not. Um, one day everything evolved around me the next day it didn't so whilst mm. there was also relief there was also um, a, sen a sense of a sense of loss as well um, and then you know after a while uh, Tim, this is the this is the real learning for me you're and you're you're told by society uh, that um, it's the good thing to you know, build something up and quickly as you can and then sell it and whoopie do you know you're, you're a great success um, all I did was swap, um, you know, a load of assets in terms of factories, stock, debtors, 
bricks, you know, bricks and mortar, um, fish and various other other things of wealth uh, for electronic digits um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a bank account. So my, my, my wealth position never changed. It just it, it, in, in terms of, you know, what my net worth was, but exactly, exactly the same as the day before and exactly the same as the day after. Um, but we're, 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 we're told to believe that this is, this is a wonderful thing. I actually, in hindsight, don't think it's a wonderful thing. I think it, I think it encourages um, potentially wrong behavior. We don't, I, in one respect, I, I, I wish I, I, I'd still had that and I could build a you know, multi-generational you know, billion pound revenue business that will last for, for you know, decades and you know, even, even centuries beyond me, like some of those great Victorian um, companies. But we, we don't make those anymore. You know, we don't simply. As, as, you know, I, I can't think of, uh, of any. None, none, none come to my head in the recent period. No, so I think um, I think there's there's something wrong with gearing your society up towards capital gain being the be all and the end all um, when we should when we should be you know thinking about generating for for as I said multi generational. How do you think Brexit will will affect your past investments and your current investments? How do I think? Sorry, Brexit. Brexit. Yeah. Uh, well, I think it will be the spectacular damp squib. Um, I don't think, uh, I'm, I'm, I can't think, but with the exception of Great Grimsby Seafood Village, um, I'm a third shareholder in an industrial estate there that we put up um, some years ago to house the independent fish trade. That might genuinely um, get some very significant benefits over uh, you know, a decade or two decades if we get if we do get our territorial waters back on the 31st of October um, because you know it's ideally placed um, it's where 70% of uh, fish processing already takes place and you know in, in 1973 we had 600 trawlers working out of bricks uh, out of um, Grimsby and now we have three or four um, so it would it it should it should benefit um, the other businesses um, I have, for, I have, you know, I have a, a quarter share of, a, of a, the largest cod um, processor, Pacific cod processor in Europe, and it's based in Denmark. Um, it does have UK customers. Um, it's perfectly um, ready with its freight forwarders to export into a third country, uh, which we, which we will become. So, you know, business business as usual there, um, and. Um, the fish farm that I have interest in fish farm in, in Mexico, its species um, is not a, a protected species as far as the EU is concerned. Um, so, you know, getting stuff into into either the UK or the EU uh, from an importation perspective um, poses poses me with no problems. So, you know, I'm I'm sitting here kind of scratching my head, um, thinking, you know, where are, where are all these problems concerning no deal or deal or I just don't see it um, but you know getting rid of one layer of government that sits above us that consumes two percent of our of our GDP I'm delighted um, and I think you know any, anything that uh, Tim you were speaking earlier about the percentage of the state absorbed um, the state absorbing our, our um, 
the rewards of our hard work, anything that they're not doing is obviously is obviously good and will be more wealth generating for, for all our businesses. And if we choose um, mutual recognition rather than alignment, um, then um, of regulation, then we'll be ahead of the game, and, and that will allow all businesses to start progressing. Um, I mean, I, I'll give you I'll give you one practical example. So I remember in in my meat factory, probably in um, probably in the late nineties, early two thousands, a Spanish meat inspector coming in and um, testing the uh, temperature on the mints. Now the EU law. Um, says mints must be done at a maximum temperature of zero yeah yeah so you put your you put your bits in the mince in, in, in the mincer you're off cuts and off it goes through the mincer and out it comes as mints now you can start with a frozen product even if you start with a minus 18 degrees frozen product the very physical nature of the friction that's generated in the say, mincer yeah. takes it over takes it over temperature full stop in your story nothing you can do about it that's the laws that's of physics, physics yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and out and out out it comes the out it comes the other end, and you can quickly put it back in the freezer or, or take it or take it down to zero. The amount of arguments we had with this bloke, yeah, who wanted to wanted to um, think about you know fines, penalties, getting us to change our practices, um, and and and, and, so <laughs> Ch- and so forth. changing yeah. the laws of physics, yeah. Oh yes, I'm not. I'm not God. I can't change the laws of physics beyond my powers, mate. You know, and it went on and on. But then it suddenly twigged to him that if he kept on harassing us and wanting wanting to enforce this thing, then he'd have to effectively close us down. And then that's one less person for him to be parasitic and and live off and pester. So it kind of became in his own interest uh, to to then uh, recognise that you know that isn't ever going to change. And then he kind of calmed down, but. You know, not having to deal with that rubbish um, is is yeah that that is going to be liberating for for many smaller businesses in particular, um, and, and that you know whilst I whilst I built a big business, um, I'm forever a small I'm forever a small little businessman, and I always want to be that, and I always want to fight against those stupidities, even though bigger businesses can you know put lots of systems in place and can have loads of counter inspectors to argue with inspectors you know and they kind of humor themselves and have their own little industry developing or feeding off your own business I'm, I'm delighted we don't have to we will not have to go down that line you know um, as we will if we have to do regulatory alignment but if we do regulatory mutual recognition then we've got a chance of getting ourselves away from that nonsense do you think um, trust in politics is going to be easily restored after the end of October? I think that's a really difficult one, Tim. I, I you know, I think people will be extremely sceptical. I, I think you'll see lesser turnouts, you know, in, in elections for for a good number of for a good number of years now, um, because they've really they have they have spectacularly scraped the bottom bottom of the barrel and. They will really ace it if uh, they don't implement the referendum result. And I think people, people will then a lot of people will give up on democracy, uh, and that's a tragic and terrible thing that they will um, be solely responsible for. Why do you, why do you think um, staying in the EU has become such a, a seemingly totemic, iconic thing for people? I f- I find it completely bizarre. From a left-wing perspective, as to what, as to why they want to grab the left-wing parties want to grab hold of this, 
um, because traditionally free trade free trade has always been uh, a, a left-wing issue. All the left-wing parties have been fully free traders since the Corn Law abolition, and it was the Tories with imperial preference and various other things, which were the which were the um, you know uh, mercantilists. Um, so from from a left-wing heritage, all the left-wing parties should be for for free trade, and you know the EU is a protectionist trade bloc. That's its that's its reason for being. It's no other. Re, you know, that's its primary reason re, reason for being. So I find it extraordinary that um, even on their own terms and on their own ideology, um, that they align themselves with it with a corporatist um, protectionist trade bloc. So that I find just bonkers. Um, and then holding on to it uh, in in this in this totemic. Uh, way just because you're in opposition uh, to, uh, to 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 people. I, I, I get the fact that they have to oppose. I get the I get the fact that our system is adversarial. Um, but when 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 you've been given a, you know a, 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 a clear clear mandate to uh, to leave, um, then uh, you know you, you oppose, but you don't you don't block. Um, and and that's what they're that's what they're that's what they're doing. Um, and they're I don't know, Tim. I, I'm, 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 I'm lost. I, I don't know what it is. Um, although one person said to me, someone's quite close to me, said to me, when Heidi Allen saw the yellow hammer report, um, it scared her to bits and led her to have sleepless nights. Um, now, you know, bless her. She's probably a sensitive soul, and she probably, you know, she's not involved in business as far as I'm as far as I'm aware. I'm not an entrepreneur, as far as I'm aware. She's not used to facing challenges and change. And you know, maybe it's this just the just the the the, the lack of an ability to think about change and change being for the better that puts a mental block on these on these people. Um, maybe maybe it's just as as, as simple as as that uh, that they're that they're deeply and profoundly scared uh, by change. Therefore, they, yeah, their, their, their instincts are to block. Yeah, uh, Tim, I've got no, no other answers for it. Um, from the from the hard left, um, again, I find it totally bizarre. You imagine someone, you imagine some Corbyn, you know, who who believes that the EU is a capitalist conspiracy that will prevent him from nationalising industries and, and giving state preference and state aid um, to people. Um, I mean, he, he's by his fingernails trying not to be a, a, a Remainer and trying not to go for a second referendum and, and trying not to not to overturn the results. But ultimately, his party, 70 percent of it, is, is, is pro um, is pro the EU. Um, so he, he's he's lost um, he's lost in it. So but even from from a left from a left wing from a truly left wing radical Marxist perspective. I can't understand why 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 they're holding on to the EU. And so, I mean, there's a there's a film. I think it's I think it's the Wild One by Marlon Brando. But he, he, he the character says, uh, uh, well, someone asked him, Johnny, what are you against? And his response is, What have you got? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Oh, sadly, it's a bit of a case of that, isn't it? I mean, you could never imagine t- um, Michael Foot, um, Tony uh, Tony Benn. Peter Shaw, you can never imagine these people um, taking taking this line. You know, they, they they had principle, um, and they would be they they would be you know a, a aligned with people like us, although be it for different reasons. 
um, to, to exit exit the EU. So the left the left's lost on multiple you know multiple multiple areas lost its lost itself. Um, it's just a it's just a the reality is it's it's a it's a Blairite mush of, uh, of people that are that are running you know the people's vote and and everything that's there to try and stop us. Um, Davos man, CBI, Blairites, basically the establishment. Just before we go into to media pick, I just wondered as an investor in businesses, do you watch tra- Dragons Den, and if if so, do you just think, oh no, that's just nonsense TV? Yeah, well, I don't watch it. Um, I have seen bits of it. Um, what I've seen of it, I think, is absolutely appalling. Really? Uh, okay. Uh, wh- yeah. Why? Uh, well, to to have um, a lot of people pre- uh, present on there. Um, some of them have weird and wonderful ideas. Some of them have good ideas, and some of them have very bad ideas. Um, but the but the way they're spoken to, um, in terms of in very adversarial and very um, uh, derogatory in in, in, in in many many respects ways, I think is appalling. I don't behave like that as an as a, a, as an investor. If I see if if someone comes to me and I do get sent business plans and various things and people ask me if I want to invest, I always try and be constructive, even if I think, hey, you guys are really off the, you're off the beaten track here. Um, I try and be constructive in terms of my engagement uh, with them and say something helpful. Or, or or if I don't have enough time to be constructive, say nothing, um, rather than um, just go, going at these people in a in a very aggressive um, and, and derogatory way. Um, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not for that. And I also, I also think that um, they're playing the game of a bit of, you know, law of averages. There, you know, I, I don't think necessarily think they're really, really discriminating enough um, on the people and on the business plans. Um, just speculating, really, on putting, allocating pots of money to things and hoping for the best. I, d- I don't get any. Any real sense of um, um, you know, proper long-term investment in, in, in investment commitment to um, to making the projects um, you know really successful. And I and I had some you know I had some experience when um, uh, two guys um, went on Dragon's Den um, and they turned down the investment and um, they, it was a bike company. Uh, called Mango, and they 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 came and they spoke to me. I'd been a chairman of a of a company for to help an entrepreneur friend of mine out, and um, asked me um, for my advice. One of the things I was asking was, why did you turn down the investment? And they said, well, I turned down the investment because uh, the dragon in question uh, said, um, you know, I, I'll allocate you. I think it's something like half an hour of my time per month to to talk to, and so on and so forth. And it was all. You know, you can't do that in a business, in a startup business. In startup businesses, um, you know, you need to be available whenever, you know, to to be able to advise and and and, and help. It's all hands on deck um, in in these things. And um, yeah, I just don't don't get the feeling they take it. I think it's more for more for good TV rather than um, serious investment. That's fascinating. That's fascinating, especially especially that that uh, anecdotal story. I mean, it, it, you're absolutely right. How many how many of these projects can they really sincerely take on and do a, do a good job with? Exactly. How many? I mean, there'll be a really interesting little um, little student um, 
you know, undergraduate little study there, or wouldn't it, on on, on mapping all those? Yes. And I, and, I, and I think it would be. I don't think it would be pretty reading. Yeah, I, I I just love the idea of the entrepreneur and what the ideas that they come up with. I just think I yeah. like that element of it, and I, so that's basically why I I like to watch it. But it's um, but yeah, you're the second person to say that that you don't like it for that, and I, I think that's really the, the you know their approach, which I think is is very interesting. But um, but Tim, do you think we, media picks, or have you got more questions? No, MediaPix, I think we've got a perfect segue into into MediaPix. So I don't know if I mentioned, uh, Toby, but we tend to sort of finish off with uh, sort of MediaPix round where we talk about either something we've seen, read or heard that's either been great or been abysmal. Yeah. So it could be it could be a book, a film, a business book. It could be anything at all. Either either something you you know love to share because you loved it, or you think it was awful and you should avoid it. So. It, it doesn't have to be business related, but business related is fine. You know, you, you, you've got me lost for words here. I simply do, I, I simply do not read um, business books um, at, 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 at all. I find them to be um, yeah, of zero. I've always found them to be of zero interest to me. I think they're more for corporate for corporate managers um, and, and 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 not for entrepreneurs. So so Tim, I, I was going to I was going to suggest that uh, you're you're um, you're um, always the one with the with lit, the literary phrase and the uh, and the and the awareness of, uh, of of the media and all those kind of things. I think that's over to you, not to not to me. I'm, well, it, I'm deficient in that cat in it, that category. It doesn't. It could it I could think, just be a film you've seen or something well, like that. I tell you, the, the best thing I've seen on tw- on on Twitter is the Oliver Cromwell. Um, uh, film. I can't remember the actor's name. I think it's Richard um, Harris. Yeah, Richard Harris. That to, that to me is a film that we should be playing. You know, all the time now with his dismissal of Parliament. And I think that is so relevant to the to, to today um, when he calls. You know, you are a you are a whoring. You're whoremasters. Whoremasters. <laughs> you're this. <laughs> I mean, it's just so fantastic. I could listen. I could listen to that all day long. That is my best bit of uh, of, of media um, at, at, at the at the moment that I think is so poignant, relevant to today's circumstances. Brilliant. And so, Toby, if people want to get in contact with you, they would do that via Twitter and your website, tobybraxendale.com. Is that yes? Would that be correct? Yeah, well, unfortunately, uh, it used to have an info button, but I've disabled it because of our glorious GDPR rules that the EU enforce us to have. Um, I don't want to have to keep records and filings and on people and do the various regulatory things if someone dares to send me an email um, publicly. Um, so I've disabled that. So on Twitter, just uh, direct message me. Um, and that's absolutely fine. And I'll get in touch. You know, fantastic. And especially, you know, if you're a young, if you're a young entrepreneur. And you're, you know, you're looking for some advice. If I've got the time, I'm always happy to, um, you know, give you give you some uh, advice as I see it. Um, if I haven't got the time, I'll, I'll tell you. At Toby Baxendale is your Twitter handle. Just just before we go, tell us about the fake news, or do you want to tell us about the fake news? There's, I thought I found that quite fascinating from your website. Oh, the fake news on the website. Yes. Well, clearly, yeah, well, clearly um, there's someone who has a name that is very similar to me called Toby Baxendale, not Toby Baxendale. 
And he was married to this um, TV presenter, Jenny Powell. Um, and um, by by all by all accounts, they they they've had a bust up at some point in time and divorced. And there's there's ch there's children involved. And he's um, you know, he's often confused with me. So I find myself on the internet being, you know, said that I'm married to Jenny Powell, um, and that I'm uh, and that, that I'm, I mean, she must just, I'm sure she's a lovely lovely lady and so on and so forth. I, I'm. I'm married to Catherine Baxendale, and we've been together since LSE in 1988. It's a rather long time. We have three children. And um, the reason why I put that up was because, the, unfortunately, the number of times um, people have approached me with great caution, thinking I'm some philanderer, um, yeah, because, because of this uh, con confusion on the internet. And I, I'll give you one example. When it hit, when it hit me in the... Bit me in the in the backside. I, I, I was going recommended by my coach. Um, I was going to see this um, this um, physio, and she didn't want to deal. She didn't necessarily want to deal with me because she thought I was a nasty philanderer. Oh my goodness! Um, yeah. So so Simon, my my coach Simon Ward, a triathlon coach, had to gently point out to her that this is this is just wrong. So in the end, I put fake news up there, so at least people know people who investigate around. That, that is not actually me. Um, that's uh, that's shown with, with uh, Jenny Powell, right? And um, nothing to do with her. So, so it shows what shows what the internet can do. Though, yes, you know? yes, absolutely. I mean, that that must be awful. I mean, I'm laughing I, at the, 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 the absurdity of it, but it must actually, yeah. you know, practically be be pretty awful. Yeah. Well, my my wife, guys, my my wife hits, gets it more than me because you know how often oh, people, yes. are, uh, you know, they don't want to confront you personally. But you know, when they'll they'll say, they'll say to her, "Oh, he's such a you know he's such a shit." I've had great sympathy with you, you know, and and, and of course she's she's like, "What? What are, we, what are you talking about?" Oh um, well, he's you know left you and blah blah. No, 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 he hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> We've been married for years, decades. So, so Toby, does this mean you you didn't actually set up Ravendale Foods? No, no. not me. Yeah, and you've got no connection with Helen Baxendale. No. No, well, Baxendale's an adopted name anyway. Uh, my father was uh, uh, adopted as a child, so we don't know what our, you know, what, what you know, we're definitely not related to Baxendale. So let's put it that way. And, and you've never been on Emmerdale? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, that, I think that tidies all that up then. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we've got that straight. Well, look, have you just finished your training, or are you just about to go out after the after you've had your coffee? No, today. no, I've done all my stuff. Yeah, I did, did all the things I needed to do. Brilliant. Um, thank, thank you for um, humouring me with the time changes. <laughs> no problem. No problem. Well, look, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's uh, been an absolute pleasure to have you on, and hopefully we can have you on again because I, I have got more questions to ask, but I, I'm, I'm mindful of your time. No, great, uh, great pleasure, and it's been it's wonderful to talk to you. And uh, you know, I love um, the stuff you, that you put out on 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 um, you know your price value thing. Um, and your podcasts, excellent. Um, I, I hope we're a growing breed of people, um, people who have our, our type of views. Um, I sincerely hope we, I sincerely hope we are. It, it, it's, it's great to, you know, be um, part of your fraternity. And thank you for having me. Much appreciated. Thanks very much indeed. It's been a real, real pleasure to catch up. Yeah. Thanks, Cheers. Thanks, then. thanks again, Toby. Take care. Yeah. All the very best. Okay. Bye now. Cheers. Then. Bye bye. Bye. Now, Tim, can we go to Ask Tim? Would that be all right?
Yeah, by all means. Right. And then I thought we'd end up with our, we'd finish up with our yeah, media picks, if that's perfect. okay. Right. So we've got a couple of voice messages and I've played, I'll play it to you. for Bugger the all. Tim. <laughs> <laughs> that's very naughty. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get to, we'll, I, I want to do mo actually, we'll, we'll, sorry, let's, let's do most certainties first because, um, yeah, let's, let's just do a big shout out to David at most certainty on Twitter. Thank you for all your support uh, as we really appreciate it. And your question is, as cryptocurrencies are likely to become mainstream, what do you think the characteristics of government forms of this digital currency will be? Also, could there ever be a version of digital gold or do you think the closest thing will always be gold-backed digital currency? Good questions. I'm not sure I'm competent to even attempt to answer them. Um, so what, what was the first part of that? Point? As cryptocurrencies are likely, likely to become mainstream, what do you think the characteristics of government forms of digital currency will be? So what will the... I, I, I mean, I, I, I know that governments are sort of dipping their toes in these waters, but I, for the life of me, I can't think why. Uh, unless they they see the future as being entirely dominated by crypto, in which they in which case they feel they have an obligation to sort of get involved and kind of muddy the water. But as things stand, my my perception would be that you've got fiat money, which is the stuff we all have to use, the stuff that's legal for payment of taxes and all the rest, and then you've got crypto, uh, and kind of never the twain shall meet. So. Unless you think that the fiat currency is basically just going to, I mean, I, I happen to think that we are going to see a currency crisis in the not too distant future, because I think that the whole debt pile around the world is is now so vast that the natural end end point of sort of dealing with the sort of debt predicament is going to be messily high inflation, because they're going to lose control. Governments and central banks will lose control of the printing press. And in the process, at some point, the marginal investor is going to abandon fiat currency altogether. Yeah. Whether they go into into crypto as a result of that is 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 not necessarily completely clear. But I've yet to take the plunge in in crypto as a, let's say as an investment, simply because, you know, I, I I have not yet. I can see the advantages, particularly of blockchain, but I've yet to make that leap of faith that that there is a store of value quality to cryptocurrency versus, say, the, the understood store of value quality to, say, hard assets like, like gold and silver bullion. So um, I, I'm mystified as to why anybody would choose to use a government-backed crypto or a government-ordained crypto, because you know they've already got crap money out there. So why have a new form of yes. digital crap money? Yes, they, they, they can debase that. So and they can't debase a cryptocurrency. So why should they do it? But I think they might do it in terms of competition. There is a there is there's a, for, a big for and there's a big against the big for for the government is that what they don't want is people to do transactions with cash. And if you have a cryptocurrency, you can effectively track every single transaction that's ever created. Either you get rid of cash and just do everything online, or you have form some form of um, cryptocurrency which does it for you. And so, I guess that's the argument for governments doing it. Um, but but, but, but against, I can't yeah. I can't see the premise at all. And I, I, I'm sure you will have seen this news that it looks it looks as if you know Facebook's Libra project is just collapsed. Has it really? No, I didn't know that. Really? Uh, I think I think if I, this is just something I've been listening to over the last few days, but it sounds like most, if not all, of the commercial partners that had signed up for uh, Libra have pulled out. Yeah, that's probably under pressure of the big banks, isn't it? I mean, they, that's quite, the last quite, thing they want. Poss 
quite possibly. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, it's, it, it, on on a related note, um, I, I note that um, you know, my, one of my favorite analysts, Russell Napier, has has a very interesting um, piece out. His, his newsletter is called The Solid Ground. But he, his most recent piece on that, he's Russell's been on a business trip talking to various institutional um, fund managers around the world, notably in the States. And the upshot of that, and you can find this for anyone that's got an FCA registration, which I appreciate will not be that many people. You can find this on his Eric website, and we can put a link in the show notes, but the address is simply eri-c.com. But unfortunately, I don't think it's available for private investors, only, only for select institutional investors. But either way, the upshot of, of, of this, of, of his, of his sort of latest tour has been he reckons that nine out of 10 fund managers expect Trump to get a trade deal with China. Uh, and the reason that they think that is because they think that if Trump can get a trade deal with China, then it will boost his re-election prospects. And Russell could not be more opposite to that view because his, his contention is that actually what, what's happening is that the US under Trump is actually accelerating trade tension, technology disputes, military uh, confrontation uh, and financial uh, repression versus China, because he's actually looking not at, you know, the the sort of the short term ishness of an economic boost. He's looking at the medium term uh, elect re-election prospects of a sort of, if you like, a sort of, let's say, a, a short victorious war with China. So he's looking at the patriot vote rather than the economic one. And just to, to, to go a little bit extra, what Russell's also saying is, you will not hear anyone else expressing that view uh, from an investment bank because all the investment banks are, are stampeding over themselves to deal with China and to make money in China. So they're not going to they're not going to uh, say boo to a goose on the topic of how things might kick off with China. So it's an interesting perspective that, that you may not hear from anybody else. There was also a question, has Tim's business gained or lost any customers due to his amusingly sensible public statements about Greta and Brexit, etc.? That's a very, that's a very good question. It's such a good and question. As, as I think I rather facetiously responded, well, we've lost a Gina Miller account. <laughs> Great. Um, now I'm going to, we've got the ability for people to send in a voice message, which is absolutely brilliant. And we got a fantastic question from Jonathan Morrow. So I'm going to play this. Thank you for your question. Hi, Paul, Tim. Hope you're both uh, well. I'd like to thank you for the, uh, the podcast. I found very interesting. Great selection of guests. Loads of experience. I could, uh, I'd never come across that experience any other way. So thank you for that. Thank you also for alerting me to Austrian School of Economics. It's an uh, incredible theory. It seems to explain everything about human action in, in an economic environment. It's very valuable. So uh, a couple of questions. Given levels of U.S. government debt and uh, likelihood it'll ever be repaid, do you believe the U.S. is actually already following a, peer, uh, a policy of MMT, just not announcing it officially? And also, given that uh, the electorate seems to fall for uh, promises of increased spending and politicians always outbid each other for votes, do you think democracies will ever escape the trap that they set themselves and spiral in government debt and the inevitable failure of the currency? If we can escape it, is it, um, do you think, more widely held knowledge of the Austrian theory that will save us? Do you think we'll end up in that way with better governance? Thanks, chaps. Wow. Okay. Um, well, thank you for the question, Jonathan. Um, on the first topic, US government debt, actually, probably both of those, um, I'd, I'd refer you to sort of the way that we've been thinking as an asset, as asset managers for the last, uh, well, 10 years plus. So, 
the, the problem, and it touches on the debt thing that, that we sort of spoke briefly about earlier, my contention would be that there is already far too much government debt in the system. Now, the US is badly, badly affected by this, but the US isn't even the worst player because basically every government in the developed world uh, is, is in, probably technically insolvent. So my argument would be quite straightforward. There's too much debt to service. It can never be repaid, but they will attempt to repay it in basically devalued money. So everything we do from an investment perspective is geared towards sound money, rarity value, uh, quality, but more specifically value, defensive value. So we, we split our portfolio, our discretionary portfolios up into a combination of value stocks um, and correlated assets, specifically trend following funds and real assets, notably gold and silver. And gold and silver, because they are monetary metals, i.e. they've been money in the past and who knows, might even yet become uh, money again in the future. So I think that the, uh, I, I mean, I, I, the job of managing a bond fund of any, of any type, I think, is now the worst job in the world, absent being the head of the US Federal Reserve or the, you're the UK Central Bank, the Bank of England, et cetera, et cetera. So I wouldn't wish managing a bond fund on anybody. Um, we, we were relatively early to get out of bonds. But uh, we'd rather be early than late, rather than early than too late. So I, I suspect what at some point is going to happen. I don't know what the trigger might be, but I think at some point central banks will, be, because QE hasn't worked, and because negative zero and negative interest rates haven't worked either, that we, we're going to get more of them. So the punishment beatings will continue until morale improves. <laughs> so I think at some point the, the, the government bond markets just blow up. But I don't know what the trigger for that might be. Isn't this just the the natural kind of process that follows if you have a fiat currency? Yeah, because as I think it may be Voltaire that said every fiat currency ultimately uh, reverts to its uh, intrinsic value, which is zero. It's yeah. just a question of time as to how long it takes. Uh, but I would be amazed if, we're, let's say for the sake of argument, we're still having this conversation in 10 years' time because I'm not sure the system can, can persist that long. Maybe it can, though. Maybe it can. Proponents so, of MMT think it, all you do is just you keep printing money and that solves the problem, though, don't they? Uh, yes, but um, no, I think most proponents of, of MMT should, should either be in jail or in kindergarten. Well, absolutely. I mean, that's, 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 another, that's another point to it. It's a bit like creating unlimited energy. You can't do it. And it at some point, the jig's up. So, so the way I would look at this is, I mean, it's quite straightforward. I'm a value investor. Uh, and per our, our recent conversation with Toby Baxendale, also a, you know, let's say a sound money advocate and someone who believed in entrepreneurialism as opposed to the big state. So to, to, to go on to the second part, the thing about the promise of spending, this is, this is exactly right that ultimately every, uh, every election just becomes an auction of, of basically stolen goods, I think as someone once described it. So all you're doing is basically prom making promises that some other poor generation of saps is going to have to try and pay for. Um, so uh, on the basis that, that the whole Brexit process has, has kind of politicized everybody, what, what, I, what I like to think is, is possible is that, uh, you know, that the next government or maybe the next but one government here in the UK, people, you know, are, are, politicians are forced to get a bit more realistic about the limitations of government. So I, I highlighted those, those figures from John Hearn, that basically every major political party in the UK is already at the hard left side of the chart of government spending, uh, which is a travesty. So getting on for 50% of the entire economy is currently being squandered um, and wasted by the government. Uh, 
Uh, and, and then a more appropriate figure would be maybe something closer to the historic average, which is probably closer to 25%, or ideally even less than that. Um, but the only way you can get that will be things through things like uh, balanced budget uh, amendments and so forth. So you need, you need to change the law. Uh, the tragedy here is that, I mean, Toby's mentioned Steve Baker. Steve Baker, at one point, I like to think, was in the running as, um, and will be in the running in the future as a new chancellor. To my knowledge, Steve Baker is the only sitting MP in Parliament who has a knowledge of, of either A, economics, and more particularly B, classical uh, Austrian economics. So he's definitely a sound money guy, but he's one of, of 650 people. So this this process, I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a tiny fraction of Parliament that's actually economically literate, but it needs to be far bigger. But, you know, one is better than none. Uh, but in terms of how the, the promises, I think, I think what is what is ahead is some form of gigantic reset, uh, but I don't know what the triggers might be because we've, we've you know we've been going down, we've been swirling down this plug hole for well 40, 40 you know plus years since uh, Nixon took the dollar off gold in seventy one. Brilliant, that's a, that's a great answer, and also with regard to what Toby Baxendale said, I didn't I didn't know because I have ne I've never studied well I studied economics at uh, at school but not at university. Um, I didn't know that the Austrian economic principles came first, and then yeah, yeah. this is the thing. I mean, I, I, it has been a bone of contention and amusement to me for really as long, certainly for, for the whole length of my career, because my brother studied economics at Cambridge, and although I wasn't uh, rude enough to point it out to Toby, I would have made the same point about the LSE because uh, I, I think that the best thing for the LSE would be to nuke it from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. <laughs> uh, but I'd say the same thing about the economics faculty at, at Cambridge, which is effectively ground zero when it comes to Keynesian, Keynesian economics. And I'm not anti-Keynes, but I am hugely uh, anti-neo-Keynesian nonsense, which is what, unfortunately, what, what all of modern politics and, uh, and, and accepted economics has now become. Yes. So it's basically it's a whole tax and spend nonsense. So I, I don't know in what form that the reset might happen, but I'm convinced there's one coming. Uh, ideally, it will be a managed reset, but I think more likely it's going to be a, a wildly disorderly one which again is why we have roughly half of our portfolios in what I'd call portfolio insurance right now. I thought that was fascinating what um, Guido was saying about, basically said the reason why this form of economics prevails is because it supports people in power, basically. Uh, absolutely, so, yes, exactly. Yeah. On the basis that Turkeys don't vote for Christmas. Exactly. So, so yeah. you know, the electoral cycle is four years, so everyone all five years or whatever it is. And so the, the only real ambition of 99% of politicians is, Okay, so how do I get how do I get elect re-elected in X years time? So all of these problems will take years, if not decades, to resolve properly if they can be resolved at all. But that's way beyond the electoral uh, schedule for most MPs. As a result, you just get you know okay, let's promise more jam tomorrow, yes. and then sooner or later the jam will run out. So then then you have you have to have some kind of reset because just scraping the bottom of the jam door is going to work anymore. Yes, that's absolutely spot on, Tim. I see why you're such a great writer. So your um, so your media picks for this week. My my media pick is is a series that we just finished watching, which we were watching via Alibi, the Alibi channel. Which I I don't know. I think it came originally. I don't know where it came from originally. It might have been a Sky production, but it's it's I Am the Night, uh, and I Am the Night stars Chris Pine, who I'd only previously seen as as Captain Kirk in the Star Trek, the rebooted Star Trek. Oh, he's good, Captain Chris Pine. I like him. I, I like. I'm, he's, he's I'm he's definitely growing on me. Um, and it also stars a rather gorgeous young actress called India Isley. But in, I Am the Night is basically connected with the 
what I now realise, I didn't realise it before, but I now realise is basically the most notorious unsolved murder case in American history. It is the equivalent of the York, uh, not the Yorkshire Ripper, the Jack the Ripper story here in the UK, the Black Dahlia murder. Um, and it's, it's essentially about a, a young girl trying to find her, her real father and mother. And uh, Chris Pine is, is a, a sort of frazzled journalist uh, who served in the Korean War, who's, who's haunted by a lot of demons from that. Uh, and uh, there's, there's a backstory and there's a, there's a scandal. And it's, it's, it's great entertainment, maybe not best edited for a series in the world, but it, it's, it's, it's well acted. But the, it, 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 there's quite a nice style to it. It's, it's very, very watchable, very, very kind of gothic. And uh, it's just great entertainment. It's called I Am the Night, um, and I found it thoroughly engaging. Uh, and it's it's basically the American Jack the Ripper um, from from uh, the nineteen sixties. Real crime drama is really popular at the moment. I, I I my so my one for this week is Joker. I actually got to see it uh, finally, and a, con- uh, a contentious pick. I haven't seen it myself yet, but I know it's it's really polarized critical uh, assessment. Uh, yeah, the crit the critics have just the critics got... hate it basically. Don't yeah, they, well, I I never listen to the critics. It's absolutely brilliant. It's absolutely. I mean, I love, I love Joachim Phoenix. Oh, he he is. He's got to get an Oscar for this. This is this is his this is his best film. Oh my it? god! It's. But... I mean, I I think he's great. Anyway, to be honest, I didn't like the um. What's that? You're never really there. I I couldn't get on with that film. I don't know why. And I do like him. I thought he was brilliant in Gladiator. He should have got something for that. I don't know if he did, but he should have done. And um. But I, this... liked, I liked him in Signs, the the, the M Night Shyamalan one. He's sort of a, a supporting role there. But it, I, I, anything he does, I find it very, very watchable. This is an amazing film. It's going to be a cult film. It is a slow burn, but very powerful film. And is it is it ultra violent? I, I don't want I don't want to comment on that. I just think okay. I don't think it should be a fifteen. But yeah. um, but it's. Well, on you, the same in... basis, Jurassic, Jurassic Park should never have been a PG, but <laughs> yeah. it seems to get away with murder, can't it? Yeah, but but it's uh, it's I I think it's just a fantastic film. Don't listen to the critics because if if you like Joaquin Phoenix, it's it's just an awesome perform, an amazing performance by him, just a masterclass, fantastic. And it's uh, I I, I loved it, so I think it's a great film. And if you look at IMDb, it's got nine on it, so I, I doubt. Yeah. The, the critics have just got it completely and utterly wrong yet again. I, I just think critics are so e- egotistical. It's all about what they think they should think about the film rather than what the film actually I is. I think there's also a degree of virtue signaling going on. Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, it got an eight minute. It got an, political correctness. It got an eight minute standing ovation at the Venice Film Festival. You know, at really? the end. Yeah, and and so what you're going to say? That's a bad film. I mean, it's. You know, it, it's it, film is about capturing a moment. It's about capturing a feeling, and it's about um, it, it's about immersing you in a world. Also, telling a story, and that's exactly what this does. And if you can't recognise that as this film as being a a masterclass in in what it was trying to achieve, then I, I just don't know. I mean, not everyone's going to like it, but if it, but it is it's a very dark film, but it's a beautifully made and beautifully performed film. And I don't think you can ask for any more, more than that. Just one extra one, if I can, if I can squeeze it. Oh, I have, of course I've, you I've, can, I've only, just, I've only just ordered it, but uh, for anyone that wasn't aware, because I don't think I was aware of this until I saw a reference to it in, in a, a piece that I just read, uh, Robert Schiller, who's a professor in, I think, behavioral economics at Yale, yeah. uh, and the author of 
one of the best books you'll read, which is Irrational Exuberance, um, has just come out with a new book, which is called Narrative Economics, uh, subtitled How Stories Go Viral and Drive Major Economic Events. Now, I'm not a fan of economists, but I am a fan of uh, Robert Schiller. So as soon as I heard that this book was out, I put in my order. So I'll hopefully get, get a copy later th this week. Uh, but I will be reviewing it uh, in due course because I, I think Robert Schiller is a god. Really brilliant. Case Schiller, the uh, the housing the, index, the housing index. Yeah, that predicted the the downturn. Apparently, wasn't wasn't it? Yeah, he no, he so he he's got such a great track record. He basically irrational exuberance, which is all about basically why are all these people paying over the odds for internet stocks, was published in I think early two thousand. So he got his timing spot on with that one, and then he followed up. I think. Uh, uh, irrational exuberance may have been reissued and if it was reissued it was reissued in 2006 and he was talking about the housing market so um this guy is worth a follow is he is he austrian school or not or do you, don't i don't think i don't think so mm. um but but he's, he's clearly you know there's clearly un unlike most economists there is actually genuine brain activity going on there <laughs> Brilliant. Well, look, once again, thank you to everyone who's put their questions on Twitter and on the voice message link, which is anchor.fm forward slash state of the markets. And obviously, you can get us on our website, which is sotmpodcast.com. Tim F. Price at Twitter. So please message him with anything and definitely follow him because he's great value, very entertaining. Tim, once again, thank you so much for everything. We're going to be doing more Ask Tim next time. And until then, thank you for listening. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.